Warning, Star Trek from the holodeck contains adult language and discussions. If you're easily offended, do not continue to listen. Walk it alone! Fire. Holodeck 3 program is reinstated. Open sesame! Commander Klingon vessel. We are energizing transport of him. Now. Welcome, everyone, to Star Trek from the Holodeck. This is the Strange New Worlds Edition, and I'm your host, Michael Flores. And in the studio today with me is the one and only and lovable David Sabal. Hello, David. You're back from your HIV scare. (laughs) Apparently, yes. No, no, no. I was on planet Vulcan communing with the stars. Communing with the stars. That's what he does. <laughs> what people don't know is that David actually died, and I had to jettison him and send him to the Genesis planet, Genesis where he then planet, yes. regenerated, and I was able to bring him back to life. He was able to survive a very painful puberty. Yeah, painful growth. Yeah. But the question is, Dave, was Lieutenant Savick there to assist you? No, unfortunately not. Oh, that's too bad. I was alone in a cave, Mike. Alone in a cave. If only we all had a Lieutenant Savick during our pubescent years. You realize that that that's the importance of her at this... In all of Star Trek, that was Savick's importance. She had to be there for... She had to be... That's so bad that's so when bad. you say that. That's the that's what she ended up being. That's <laughs> listen. If it's going to be anyone, I mean, new Savic is better than old Savic. I mean, true. I wasn't into Kirstie Alley Savic, but the the random recasting choice for Star Trek what Star Trek three three yeah I can I can get behind that for sure. So all right, let's get down to business because we have a lot to discuss today. We are going to be discussing and breaking down episode six of season one titled Lift Us Where Suffering Cannot Reach. I want to start this discussion off by saying Pike was getting after it in true Captain Kirk fashion. Could you blame him, though? No. You can't blame him. No, she was attractive, right? Oh, absolutely. What was her name? Uh, Alora. Alora. I think it was Alora. Plus, she was diabolical. I mean, that's those are the ingredients of. She was a femme fatale. Oh yes, she look was a femme at you. Fatale. That's right, Dave. It really was. <laughs> but I do, just to be kind of serious, I like that there's sexuality and sex in this series. It feels yeah. more like classic Trek. It does. That's something that, I mean, there are moments in Discovery where there's relationships. But because it has, it's more of a romantic flair in Discovery and it's void of actual sexual gravitas. Whereas Strange New Worlds is bringing that sexuality back in a big way, like the original series did, like TNG did, like Deep Space Nine did, like Enterprise did. Oh, yeah. So I like that. And that's just the douche in me. And I can't help it. (laughs) I like sexuality. And attractive people. That's what I want to see. Pike's hair? Come on. How tall can that hair get every episode? This is what Star Trek was built on. I mean, that 
that, cool haircuts. You know, the sexiness, the 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 absolute. I mean, if you look back at the nineteen when it was made in the nineteen sixties, that is what the one of the fundamentals that Roddenberry. That built was the sexual revolution. The sexual man. revolution. That's why I'm like going now. It's it's so refreshing seeing it because we're not in a sexual revolution anymore. We're right. not, we're more or less kind of like in a we're sexual, reverting. yeah, a sexual repression. We're, we're type reverting of age. back to Puritan esque ideals minus the Christian element. Yes. Don't look at my body. It's naughty. And and dude, I am so happy. I love Discovery. Okay, let's get this straight. Yeah. There are characters, there are actresses on Discovery that I absolutely adore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but Strange New Worlds just ups the hotness. I can't take it. Like, I thought, I mentioned this on our pre-show that people can can tune in on, but like, we, I mentioned that basically I was going in this thinking Rebecca Romaine was going to revitalize that feeling of the 1960s sexual revolution in star trek right well she has that classic look and she has that classic look but every other person in the cast down to you know like down to down to even like anson mount good looking dude all of them are good looking all of them are good like nurse chapel is probably my favorite oh yes david (laughs) you weren't here for the episode discussion where i swooned (laughs) swooned over (laughs) if you were spock you'd be like automatically going to nurse chapel yeah i'm like to pring uh, chapel, mm, chapel, which is hilarious because like I, I listened to the episode of like going, yeah, I wanted to interject there basically like during the episode, that episode, I kept like thinking to myself, God damn it, Spock, what the heck is wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> She's right there, man. <laughs> what I, is wrong? I felt like Sebastian from Little Mermaid. I'm like, go ahead and kiss <laughs> the girl. <laughs> whoa, whoa. <laughs> And I kept like going, I feel like at the end of the episode, I felt sorry for Nurse Chapel. Like, like, oh, I know you want to. <laughs> <laughs> I know you want to. All right. So let's get back into this. After a bit of a hiatus, we are back and ready to start the to officially start talking Star Trek Strange New Worlds again. Lots of different things came up. Obviously, COVID for you, Dave. Yep. Vacation for me. So we are going to be a little behind. So this episode does a few things just exceptionally well. Uh, this episode explores the nuances yet again of some classic philosophical theories such as moral relativism yeah. versus moral objectivism. Uh, this is a very common aspect uh, or I, I guess you could say trope that Trek writers have used as writing devices to pose very complicated questions that if done properly, explore the intricacies of a culture at odds with the ethical and moral views of the Federation's idealistic social and political reforms. Mm -hmm. And if you are an avid Trek viewer, I'd imagine you'd be hard-pressed not to instantly notice the familiarity of the aforementioned philosophical theories. For one, the idea of the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Yes. Or... The one is is somewhat based on the idea of utilitarianism, which we have discussed in depth, which tells us that in any situation, the right thing to do is whatever is likely to produce the most happiness overall. If you take a moment to reflect on this thought, you will quickly see just how this theory can be applied to justify the fate of the Magellan children that are plugged into a machine that keeps their planet habitable 
very much on par with the idea of utilitarianism. Yeah. There are also countless episodes of both. Excuse me. There are also countless episodes of TNG, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, as well as Enterprise that delve into these areas in some way. But the episode that stands out when it comes to these types of moral and ethical questions that are being posed is the rather unsettling episode of TNG, which is the episode titled Half a Life. In this episode, Luxwana Troy causes trouble when she finds out that a scientist she has fallen in love with. And what this guy does, because he's from the Callian species, I believe is what the name of the species was, but he was about to commit ritual suicide in this episode. And I believe he actually ends up going through with it, if I remember the episode correctly. And this became a part of their civilization after severe overcrowding, if you remember that episode. And if you don't, I do urge you to go and watch the episode because it will give you a little bit more context. But their civilization came up with this idea of ritual suicide because of severe overcrowding that led to unfavorable conditions. And it was decided that ritual suicide would essentially help alleviate stress, but also present an opportunity to celebrate the lives of the individuals when they were not burdened by the effects of old age. They called the event the resolution and it would become a critical part of their society. Yeah. So that's one episode that came to mind when I was watching this episode of Strange New Worlds. We could probably spend several hours on this topic, on that episode alone specifically. And perhaps, David, we can plan a show for our Patreon subscribers in the next couple of weeks once Strange New Worlds ends their first season run where we can get into the details of moral relativism and objectivism and how it pertains to the world of Star Trek because those are common philosophical theories that are continually used by the writers of Star Trek to pose issues between the Federation and other civilizations. They did that a lot in the first season of Enterprise. Archer had to learn the hard way many times. In fact, to Paul's her her point One of the in a lot points. of ways in the first season was her tutelage. You can't go around just showing up at people's door and expecting to be happy that you're here. Not yes. everyone is like you. So there was a lot of those philosophical ideas in that first season of Enterprise. So as I said, Dave, we could probably spend a very, very long time on that topic. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, the hour that we designate for this discussion, it just doesn't allow that type of analysis. However, we, we probably will plan something for Patreon in July. Now that I have given people, David, some background We've paved a path to an adequate entry point for a proper episode discussion because this episode revolves around Pike and uses his existential crisis as a way to shape the narrative. We know that Pike is struggling with his perceived fate and a part of him wishes to find an alternative, a non-deterministic path so when he had The Enterprise crew, or I should say when he and the Enterprise crew encountered this idyllic planet, 
that has the means to save him from living out this future, he becomes enamored with the people and their ability to live free of diseases and physical ailments. Yeah. But there's a catch. The inhabitants of this planet, the Magellans, essentially use the minds of children to power and sustain their planet's idyllic nature, yes. which effect- effectively renders the children brain dead vegetables. Yes. And once Pike discovers this, he immediately jumps to action in an attempt to put an end to the Magellan ritual. Yes. It was strong because it isn't an easy topic to to dissect in the ways of right and wrong. and wrong. And that's where moral relativism and objectivism comes into play. It's a very complicated topic. It you is. can't simply point to them and say, oh, they're bad. Well, their culture, this is what their culture is built on. That's the easy answer a lot of people jump to mm-hmm. is, oh, okay, well, they're automatically wrong. They're automatically wrong because it goes against your own moral code. No one takes that step back and says, well, just like we said, that is based on their own cultural beliefs. So because it's not morally, morally, it's not moral to us, but it's moral to them. What do you do? Yeah. Well, this is the aspect where strange new worlds. This episode deviates from that, the TNG episode I had mentioned half a life because we are dealing with the act of consent. That's the difference. And half a life, you're dealing with adults who understand the situation, the, the, the gravitas of the situation and are presumably of able mind. Whereas with the strange new worlds episode that we are discussing today, we are dealing with the manipulation and indoctrination of innocence which typically this simple fact is used to justify moral objectivism now before we continue david it's important for us to briefly delve into the differences between moral relativism and objectivism because i feel that it will bring uh, a greater understanding to our discussion here because some trek viewers might have noticed that pike was willing to demonize a non-Federation culture, which is something we don't always see our Trek captains do. Typically, they maintain a level of objectivity, which is on par with Trek's philosophy on respecting other cultures. It has a lot to do with General Order 1. General Order 1 isn't just about interfering with a pre-warp society. It also has to do with these types of things as well. But where children are concerned, the writers oftentimes use this to play against that notion of non-interference. We've gone into this topic a bit, Dave, during, I believe, our season four discovery discussions. We talked about the, the moral implications, or I should say the moral relativist inclusion within discovery when it pertained to What's Burnham's boyfriend's name? I forgot. Book. Book. And the actions he took against species 10C. Yes. So we went into it a bit, but let's take a few moments to do it again because Strange New Worlds seems to have garnered a new audience and we have had an influx of new listeners that may not have been privy to 
that discussion. Yeah, well, especially since Strange New Worlds, I think, handled this discussion in a different way. There's a different nuance to how they actually handled the subject that we're going to cover. Because there's more... With Book, it was like more emotional. We understood Book. We understood why he made the decisions he made, and we sympathize with him, right? Here, it's not an individual that we're trying to understand. It's an entire culture, entire species. Which is where we get into the weeds a bit when it comes to moral relativism and objectivism. Now, Mm -hmm. just to put it plainly, moral relativism is the view that what is morally right or wrong depends on what someone thinks to which the claim that opinions vary substantially about right and wrong is usually added. We can think of this position as coming into coming in two flavors, a subjectivism. What is morally right or wrong for you depends on what you think is morally right or wrong. For example, right or wrong is relative to the individual. The moral facts may alter from person to person. Now, just listening to that definition, you can imagine the type of trouble you can get into if you subscribe to that line of thinking. Yes. Because you can essentially justify anything. Anything. Well, this is what I believe. This is morally right to me. I just shot a baby. That's, 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 That's okay in my culture to do. Yeah. Now, B, the second part of moral relativism, there's another aspect called conventionalism which is probably more on par with how the Magellans lived. It, it, it is morally right and wrong, or I should say what is morally right or wrong depends on what the society we are dealing with thinks. For example, morality depends on the conventions of the society we are concerned with. The moral facts may alter from society to society. At the other side of that spectrum is moral objectivism. Yes. This is the view that what is right or wrong doesn't depend on what anyone thinks is right or wrong. That is the view that the moral facts or like physical facts and that what the facts are does not depend on what anyone thinks they are. Objectivist theories tend to come in two sorts. There is duty-based theories, theories that claim that what determines whether an act is morally right or wrong is the kind of act it is. And then there is consequentialism or consequentialist theories. And these theories claim that what determines whether an act is right or wrong are its consequences. Yeah. And then within that little offshoot is where you can find utilitarianism, which is best, which is the best known sort of consequentialism. It's best known Defender was someone we talk about a lot in a lot of our shows, which is John Stuart Mill. He was a philosopher in the, what is it, the 18th, 17th century. Uh, Essentially, utilitarianism tells us that in any situation, the right thing to do is whatever is likely to produce the most happiness overall. Yeah. The wrong thing to do is anything else. So who's right? And that's why these types of things get complicated because you can easily see that this society, the Magellans, I I keep pronounced that way. Hopefully that is in fact how you pronounce that species. I do not remember, but the Magellans are obviously guided by moral relativism. Yes. So 
after going through all of that, we have a greater understanding as to why the writers did what they did with Pike and his reluctance to restrain his emotions and interfere with another culture's practices. Yes. Moral objectivism is not about imposing your ethical and moral beliefs on others, but generally speaking, this philosophical theory is based on a set of moral standards that should be adhered to. And this is more or less what society in reality is guided by. These are universal moral principles that are typically seen as valid for all people and situations, regardless of culture, beliefs, or feelings. For example, the common examples that are pointed to within these standards of objective morality, most persons can agree that it is wrong to kill for fun, cheat, steal, or purposely cause pain and suffering to innocent people. Yeah, to torture. So the writers use Pike's moral objectivist attitudes or attitude as well as the federations to create an ethical conflict and justify his cultural interference. Mm -hmm. That's why it worked so well. And by doing so, it fleshed out more aspects to Pike's characterization. We learned more about him and his views and his willingness to interfere with a society that is in his view, taking advantage of innocence. And interestingly, there's a practical element to this episode that could be used as an example in today's world. We live in a civilization that is considered multicultural. And oftentimes we find ourselves at odds with the beliefs of others. And we wonder where do we draw the line when it comes to inclusivity and acceptance of ideas that may be foreign to us? Exactly. Now, my own code of ethics, just to share a bit, and I'll help under, help people understand the episode a bit better when it comes to the philosophical aspects. My own code of ethics and morality is what I'd call, um, is what I'd call secular. It's void of religious entanglement and probably veers somewhere between relativism and objectivism. But being a rational individual when dealing with civilization. And the intricacies of society and the complicated nature of human nature, it relies on the, we have to realize that a lot of these things that we view, it relies on the interactions of diverse peoples. Yes. We'd melt into, into chaos if we didn't utilize standards of objective morality. We have to say A, B, C, and D are the right the ways right way. we live within this society. We cannot slip into moral relativism in our society because it would be chaos. Yes. So that's, I would say, for the most part, is where the Federation is also centered. It's somewhere between moral objectivism and relativism. And that, that, that's the thing. That's the biggest sticking point, too. That's what makes the, the whole episode, the, the argument, I guess you could say it's an argument, but the conflict in the episode, that's what makes it so much multi-layered because it's no longer, you know, black and white. It's complicated. It's complicated. Which is real life. You could even look at real life and say, we face that even today. Say, for example, you know, the argument of stem cell research. Absolutely. We have, you know, cases that show stem cell research works. And this is what needs to be done for stem cell research to actually be enacted, but people are uncomfortable with it, but they want the benefits of it. So you have to actually almost 
just like in this episode, you got to actually look at this conflict multi-layered. Right. And I feel like the writers in what was like 50 minute running time, roughly, they really managed to express a thought and an opinion on ethics and morality in a way that that was so effective that I don't feel like there has been an episode of Star Trek. And this is saying a lot. There has been some fantastic episodes of Star Trek that have delved into the ins and outs of these very same things. But this episode took those aspects and made it that much more complicated. Yes. And that's what, you know, not to shoot my load all over the place, but no, I think ahead. I think that this episode is probably the one episode of Star Trek, including all of what we see in Strange New Worlds up to this point, that's tackled a subject matter like this. Yeah. And has done it so well that basically it causes you as the audience to really look at each other and basically say, okay, what, what do you believe? Do you believe that, you know, these people were right in doing what they did? And you'd be surprised to actually see some people actually feel that they're, they're doing the right thing. They're keeping their planet alive by any means necessary to keep them alive. Yeah. And does it, does it mean they have to sacrifice a few? Yes. It, and again, it goes back to like that argument that you brought up, the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few. But you see, this is where it gets complicated because if it was an adult yes. of able mind, it would be a different story. That's what, that's why I liked when you brought, well, when you brought up the whole point about half a life. Cause I remember that episode. It's it such was, a sad episode. It's a sad episode and they have the, the comedic character throughout all of TNG, her, uh, uh, Loxana Troy. Yeah. She's the one that has to go through it because she, the person that she falls in love with is the one that basically at the end of the episode has to commit ritual suicide because that's what his culture calls for. Yeah. And at the end, she has to, she has to come to terms with that, that basically she doesn't want to go. She doesn't want to go with through with this because she's in love with him. But because he made the subjective choice as an adult to do this she goes through with it and she even pleaded if you remember she pleaded with picard to do something about it and yeah and picard Picard's all like this is their culture who am i to say hey you've been doing this for a millennia that we're here now to end that and think about it now you take picard's way of thinking and put it against pikes and realize that both captains would tackle problems differently it would be interesting because the thing that makes this episode unique is the inclusion of the kid. The fact that yeah. the kid is the sacrifice, an innocent who is probably unaware of a lot of things, who probably may not even be aware that he's essentially stepping into something that's going to kill him. Yeah, to a death trap. Yeah. And also, he was a true believer, which is also disturbing. I mean, mm-hmm. he was willing to step in there because he drank that Kool-Aid, that boy. That kid drank the Kool-Aid and believed this is the only way. And that is another problem. And that's the difference in this episode is the, the child being at the center of that. But I would also say that let's say we, we flip-flopped and brought Picard into this equation instead. I don't think Picard would have tried to stop it. No. Picard I, was more practical. Picard was more practical and Picard knows his boundaries. Now, I'm not saying he would have cared, of course. Exactly. You know, he's a humanitarian, but at the same time, he's also of a very philosophical mind. And he's a diplomat. 
He's an absolute yeah. diplomat that understands that they're in a they're in a position of being multicultural. They mm-hmm. have to respect everyone's culture, no matter what they believe. It's to, it, to a degree. To a degree, you know, and like that's where I really like the fact. By the end of everything, you sympathize with Pike, but you also kind of look at Pike and say, "You can't interfere because it's against what you are your code." It's right. against the code of the Federation. You just can't. But this is why all of this works so well, because at the end of the day, it's not really about teaching people philosophy. Hey, guys, let's uh, ex- let's sh- give you guys a lesson on philosophy. They're using philosophy because that's what Star Trek is about. They're using philosophy as a writing device to help flesh out our captain. Yes. That is why it works so well. It's not about the philosophy. It's about what that inclusion of the philosophical theories that was used in this episode does for our captain. And it did a lot. It did absolutely a lot because it showed showed, how far Pike will go. Yeah. It it showed his what's going to actually break his moral code. The idea of him essentially cheating death. He can cheat death. Right. Right. In his mind, that's what he's seeing. I could cheat death. He was essentially given a get out of jail free card. Exactly. Hey, listen, I, I'm not going to, I can still face my fate. But then at the end, I can come to this planet and they could fix me. And they could fix him. And it, he but threw it comes that out cost. the window when it came down to the kid. Yes. So all of that philosophy was geared to fleshing out Pike. And mm-hmm. they did an exceptional job in that aspect and the beautiful thing is when you get to the end of it you kind of i actually almost feel as sad as it sounds i would actually kind of go against pike on this if i was in pike's shoes i would have chose the latter because a part of me well you're a real son of a bitch (laughs) well part of me philosophically was going this is their culture they're this is how they keep their 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 civilization alive david that's dangerous (laughs) thinking it is dangerous thinking, because but it is also true. that's how Nazi Germany also justified things. Like, uh, hey, this yeah, is yeah. for the betterment of our culture and our society. We must exterminate the Jews and pave the way for a supreme race. And by doing so, we will push humanity forward. That that is true. That is true. If you take that line of thought all the way, but the way I thought about it was like the current status with stem cell research. Yeah. Right. Stem cell reachers, I have seen people literally get cured of diseases if we went this round of stem cell research, right. research, but we won't. People won't because like ethically, essentially, if people out there don't understand what stem cell research, research is, they take fetal um, material and they essentially use that to fix certain diseases. And in doing so, what you're doing is using babies, baby material to actually f- baby material, baby material. And that bothers people. Right? So, but if you look at all the cases, you see people like literally cure diseases that today we, we battle with. Well, you're bringing up, see that t- <laughs> it's such a complicated topic it's a because complicated topic. we're dealing with again a civilization that's multicultural where you do have to respect other people's views and opinions but all at the same time do we govern a society based on religious notions which mm-hmm. is why people are against 
stem cell, stem cell research. research. And you know, this country, this country was built on the United States was built on the backs of Puritan ideals. So of course we're going to have these types of things continuing to pop up in our society. And we're always going to have those, those confrontations when it comes to morals and ethics. Mm-hmm. So that is a good point. So to bring the philosophical side of this, of this discussion to an end, I think most can agree that the writers did more than an adequate job dissecting the intricacies of morality and ethics and then using it to push our captain forward in the way of character development. Yes. Now, ultimately, everything we've discussed so far does wonders for Pike's development. It pushes him underneath the fan's telescope, of which is a lens that many of our captains find themselves we are already aware of his selflessness, but this aspect highlights his existential crisis mm-hmm. and makes it more tangible through the use of subtext. When Pike discovers that the Magellans have r- rendered disease and physical impairments ailments within their society essentially obsolete, it serves as a temptation and a platform to dissect what type of person Pike is. Will he make the ethical decision that is in line with his ideology or will he bend in order to change his fate? You know, and then you have the love interest as well. (laughs) Yes. Bros before hoes, right? Ethics before hoes. I like that. There you go. I would probably put ethics on the back burner. <laughs> Especially for Alora, dude. Well, no, oh. Chapel. If Chapel oh, was, was telling me to do something bad, I'd be like, mm. <laughs> I can't I can't say no to you. I'll sign up for whatever you want me to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it was it was solid. Solid development. Now when you look at story B and C, um, which is Mbanga, I would say, and his daughter, as well as Lan and Uhura. Those, I think those characters make up for the most part story B and story C and through, I guess, connected in a broader sense of story does a few things for our other characters when looking at story B and C. Mbanga and his mission to save his daughter from the disease was brought to the forefront and the viewers were left with the hope that he would in fact be able to at the very least create a treatment for his daughter, not a cure. I believe is what they had said at the end. We also had those scenes between Lyanne and Uhura. Here, the writers continue to build rapport between our characters, which we had said this during our pre-show six episodes in, and I'm amazed by how the writers have accomplished this in such a short time frame constructing the narrative in such a way that has allowed this series to do something that I don't believe a Trek series any Trek series Dave yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna go out there on that limb has been able to do as quickly the plot is intricately designed to do numerous things at once Adjacent or parallel narratives are crafted to explore the immediate story Mm -hmm. and or themes while moving individual character arcs forward and highlighting an effective emotional continuance from episode to episode. And you can't really point to any other series. And I'm sure there are fans out there wanting to beat me over the head right now. (laughs) 
listeners of, of our show, but, but hear me out for a second here, Dave. And if you disagree, by all means, please stand in for those listeners and, and throw something at me. But I'm not saying this is the best Star Trek series today. I'm saying they have accomplished something that other Star Trek sh- shows take usually a full season, if not two seasons, to get done. I will actually 100% agree with you. Star Trek The Next Generation. But that took it, like two seasons. It took time. It took two seasons to actually for us to get behind the crew of the, yes. of the Enterprise. Same thing with, if you go back Deep and Space watch. Space Nine, same thing. Deep Space Nine, the same thing. Enterprise, Voyager. Enterprise took a long time to really yeah. care or even really know much about all of those characters as well. Voyager, the same way. It yep. took about a season and a half, I think. And even with the original series. The original series is the same format as Strange New Worlds, but I feel that it probably took about a season for us to truly get behind Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Well, even that, those are the only three characters we ever fully understood exactly. throughout the entire seat or the entire run of the show. Of the show. Here, I legitimately care for every single character in Strange New Worlds. Pike's story is amazing. And even if we don't care for them necessarily, Let's say we're not completely emotionally invested as it. We're had. interested. We know. We know. We know what they're about. At exactly. least we know a bit of their background. I think the only character we don't know too much about yet is Ortegas. Is Ortegas. But like, if you look at Spock, I love the growth of Spock up to this point. This is young Spock and he's growing into the Spock that we all know. Mm-hmm. Una. Hopefully he grows into Chapel soon. Oh, <laughs> oh I don't think he's going to do so that. That is so inappropriate. I, I really think something is wrong with Spock. <laughs> I really think something is wrong with him. Because once Kirk shows up, all of a sudden that's going to be his love interest is Kirk. <laughs> I love you, Kirk. I love you, Kirk. And Chapel's going to be there going, what about me? <laughs> but you know, listen, I'm into threesomes. Let's make it work. Let's make it work. Oh, but like even like. That would be a sex sandwich. <laughs> For the ages. <laughs> that would that would just that would make all Star Trek fans blow up in their pants. <laughs> that sounds so fucking childish. <laughs> it is. Oh, but I but love see, it. You know what? No, the funny part would be like Spock wanting to get in Kirk's pants. Kirk wants oh. to get in Chapel's pants, and Chapel wants to get in Kurt Spock's <laughs> pants. You're just you're 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 just you're you're, you're just keep it simple, <laughs> keep David. It simple. <laughs> Let's stick to a basic Eiffel Tower maneuver. Eiffel okay. Tower Let's maneuver. you know high fives. <laughs> Two opposite sides. (laughs) Two opposite sides. Let's keep it simple. But like for all the characters in Strange New Worlds, the only one that we barely know anything about is Ortegas. But Ortegas, I still have that interest in her. Oh, yeah. In fact, I'm a little more interested in her because we don't know too much yet. Yeah. I mean, I love what they did with showing... La'ana and uh, I think it's La'ana. La'ana La'an. and La'an and Uhura. Uh, mm-hmm. I love that little thing because that was funny. That was actually it funny. It was really the, good. The fact that us, uh, it makes sense, dude, because she's a descendant of Khan Noonan Singh. I just love how business she is. She's, she's so just... business and she's like upset that basically someone quit. <laughs> she had to take a break. Yeah, of course. Because that's me. <laughs> that's like. <laughs> How, how dare David have COVID? <laughs> You're like Khan. Damn it. Damn him. I'll blow you from the stars. I'll blow you from the stars. Wait, I'll blow you from the stars? <laughs> that sounds inappropriate. That as well. sounds really inappropriate. Yeah. But like that that little bit of 
story between mm-hmm. those two said a lot about those characters and it propelled their character development forward. We now understand, you know, Anne is basically that I don't give two shits about like your, your excuses. She's very businesslike. She's strictly said. business. She's yeah. strictly business. She needs to find some love in her there's, life. There's to help no, soften her a bit. There's no, yo, you're my friend. I'm going to take it easy on you. No, no. <laughs> you know who she reminds me of a bit? Yar. Tasha Yar. Oh my God. You're right. Yeah. You, Tasha was like that. Militant, strictly business persona, which I find she needs a scene like the what Tasha had with Data. Oh my God. No. <laughs> that destroyed me as a child. <laughs> that destroyed that that gave me the the feelings I couldn't shake for at least five years. <laughs> when Tasha just basically looks at him and says, I am fully functional. I am fully functional. <laughs> wow. So let's talk a bit about the uh, the visuals of this episode. I, I felt like the overall mise-en-scene as well as the cinematography were some of the best thus far. Mm-hmm. The visual effects team, and I talked a little bit about this a couple episodes ago, the VFX team on this show is really capitalizing on the the new technology available for these TV shows. Yeah. Based on my knowledge of production, I believe they are working fairly close with the art department as well as or the production designer to bring these sets to life with the use of the AR wall, which is the virtual environment they're creating. Uh, they are also creating visuals that truly immerse the audience and jog our curiosity and intrigue. The design of the Magellan homeworld was fantastic looking. Oh, it looked gorgeous. I mean, it was so unique and just it popped it increase the scope of this show, which is something we continue to talk about during our discussions, the size and scale of these new Star Trek shows. Sometimes they feel confining, whereas Strange New Worlds just feels big. It feels very big in scope. And if you're dealing with a show that's geared towards exploration, which is what this series is about, you have to explore And when you explore, you can't just explore in some narrow field of view. You have to create the scope of the universe in the way that it it is. Oh, yeah. I mean, and I think the technology, I don't think they could have done this show properly if this was done maybe eight, ten years ago. No, because I actually I actually remember reading a article on the cinematography of Strange New Worlds. And for people out there, they're they're using uh, custom lenses to their cameras. I believe they're, uh, is it pronounced cook or Coke lenses? It's K C O O K E. Uh, I'm not sure. And there's, they're custom Coke lenses that they're using that you can only get in today's day because they have to get them customized for their cameras to give them that, the, the look that they, they're trying to go for, for strange new worlds. And I remember I'm trying to, I think it's, um, it was an article that Glenn Keenan, who is the cinematographer for uh, Strange New Worlds for some of the episodes, talked about it in the in in the article, and he was talking about how the lenses itself, down to this, you could not get these type of technology. Yeah, five years, 
ago. It's today. Yeah, things have progressed a lot because of the rise of streaming and the fact that there's a more there's a a much bigger call for content. And because Netflix, Hulu and Amazon pretty much I guess you can view them as the the forefathers of the streaming era. Oh, they put so much money into their shows that you can't have a streaming service that doesn't pop like those three. Otherwise, yes. you're going to get lost in the mix. So because there's a need for this high quality content, the technology is actually coming out quicker for these things. Yeah. And I actually I actually have the article bookmark. I have the a quote from uh, Keenan in the article that I uh, found where it says, uh, while Star Trek Discovery was an HD production, Keenan had bigger plans for Star Trek Strange New Worlds, and this is what he said. There was a moment when shooting dis uh, Disco in Anamorphic that I knew I really wanted to full frame special flair for 4K for Strange New Worlds. Hmm. My supplier got on the horn with Coke, and Coke built a custom set of Strange New Worlds, delivering two sets before episode one. I think it's Coke. Yeah, I okay. think it is. Yeah, I have to... Look it up, but I actually never bothered with the pronunciation. With I'm, I'm familiar Same with, here. with the Same lens here. packages, but not with how you pronounce it. I just don't want our film film friends throwing a shit. <laughs> shit. And it's, it goes on to say delivering two sets before episode one, then a third set once they were made. Cook stepped up with full frame anamorphic special flair for day one. Wow. It was remarkable three sets in two months. So these lenses that they got were specifically made because they wanted to get a certain look David, for Strange New Worlds. That's what I'm talking about. That's why this series is popping. Because what do I always say? There may be listeners, David, who don't or who are not aware that we do a wide variety of shows, not just you and I, but I'm talking about our network. And one thing I continue to talk about when we get into more of our, our technical discussions when it comes to movies and the production side of things. Mm -hmm. I find it hard to admire things like from the Marvel side, the Marvel movies. Sure, the technology they use is beautiful and they make a lot of great looking shows. I'm not taking that away I from them. I can say what I think you're going to say. When the writer sits down and the director sits down, they're writing with... Uh, they're writing based on the, tech, the technology that is available That's to them. available. They're not doing what James Cameron and what George Lucas and what still Steven Spielberg or any other of the great directors have done, which is, hey, I'm not going to be I'm not going to write my story based on what is available. I'm going to write whatever I want, whatever I want. And then I'm going to create or seek out the, the new technology to make my vision a reality. And that's what the Star Trek Strange New Worlds writers are doing. Yeah. They're not sitting idly by writing and saying, well, we can only do this based on the technology available. They're writing it and then they're attempting to make their vision possible by seeking out the technology needed, whether it exists or not. Yeah. And the, the whole idea or the whole aspect you just brought up with the lenses is evidence of that. The fact that they're seeking out the proper tools. I'm glad you brought up the idea of Marvel because I like the Marvel shows, but I, the one thing I've always stated about Marvel is- They're not innovative. Is, they're just They're not, not innovative. It's, they're not. They're, I have spoken about this 
done several times when me and Bobby have covered Marvel shows. Sometimes the some of the shows look flat. It's, they look there is boring. no innovation. There's no innovation. There just isn't. And you look at shows nowadays. Star Trek is one of the ones that I think fully takes advantage of the new technology and says we're going to shoot. Whatever we can write, no matter what the technology is, we're going to make the technology to work. The only other, and for some strange reason, a lot of the bigger franchises, I would say Star Wars comes in there sometimes and they basically say, we're going to try to innovate the technology. We're going to try to do different things. They did it with like their green screen technology with the, uh, um, the, the new way of, I forgot what it's called, but basically the green screen technology they used in the Mandalorian. It wasn't a green screen. It was, it was uh, um, green screen is pretty much obsolete yeah, when it comes to their set. I remember what it's called. But it's basically the LED screens, the projection. It's like a virtual use. set, basically. The virtual it's set It's different than what the Star Trek producers are using, but it's yeah. the generally, generally it's the same concept. But even then with Star Trek, the thing I've been reading the most, they take that technology and then they ramp it up in Star Trek because they, they want to make sure that the thematic elements in their visuals give the vibe of Star Trek that basically this has to be a show that makes you feel this is the future. Yeah. This is how the future is going to look like. Yeah. And all the other geek shows out there, they don't do that. That's why a lot of those geek shows look flat. They look two-dimensional. Well, because they're using what's already there. Already there. Yeah. And listen, when you're Disney, you don't really need to innovate. <laughs> you just need, if you... The, you just going to produce. Disney's philosophy is simply, hey, if it works, let's just keep doing it. Yes. Which, listen, there's some logic to that, but also you're going to start getting memes out there that make fun of the look, which is actually happening now. After Doctor Strange came out, they, there's a bunch of memes saying that, <laughs> yes. is it just me or has every Marvel film in the last four years all had the exact same look? Yeah. And I'm like, much. yeah, you're, right. you're I, right. I picked up on that a long time ago. And, and God bless Star Trek fans because... If you, that is the one thing I love that Star Trek fans pick up on. If Star Trek series get lazy with their visuals. Star Trek or Star Wars? Star Trek. Oh, Star Trek. Yeah. Star Trek fans will be the first ones to point it out and meme it. Well, <laughs> you cannot get lazy when it comes to your look when it, on Star Trek. Yes. But we saw that with Picard, with Picard season one. The finale was so fucking lazy and dialed in <laughs> when it came to visual effects. That is, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. It's but embarrassing when you're copy and pasting your ships and none of them look unique. They literally look, look like copy and paste. someone went to Photoshop or After Effects and just did simply copy, paste, copy, paste, copy, paste, <laughs> copy, paste, copy, paste. It's really bad. And uh, that was the first time I ever noticed anything poor in any Star Trek. In because, any Star Trek. And listen, you can't get away with that when it comes to Star Trek or even Star Wars. Because Star Trek and Star Wars are two franchises that are known for practical and visual effects visual innovation. Effects. Mm -hmm. In a lot of ways, Star Trek really was the forebearer of practical effects, even before Lucas got involved with it in Star Wars. Oh, I yeah. mean, the use of the models for it, for the original, the original series, series is what really made that series stand out. In fact, we knew, we went to school with the son of one of the, the VFX coordinators on Star Trek, and they were using practical effects up until Enterprise. And oh, then yeah. they eventually phased out the practical effects and went straight with the CGI. 
but their CGI never looked bad. There were moments with the alien species where it struggled a bit in Enterprise, and there were some moments in Voyager that don't really that don't hold, up. hold up. But for the most part, um, Star Trek can always can always stand on their on their their visual effects and visual prowess. That's something that Star Trek is known for. Yeah. I mean, look at the motion picture that we just saw. Um, the 4K restoration at, bring on up. the big yeah. screen. I mean, those shots look like they could have been made yesterday. Yes. That's how beautiful it was. And it's because it's predominantly practical effects. It's all practical effects. And now we fully understand why Kirk was staring at the starship enterprise and looking as if you want to fuck it oh wow <laughs> all right so yes david kind of adding to your your discussion point about the cinematography it was motivational there were several moments where the camera movement would evoke a mood that lends itself to a type of visual uh ratiocination that offers clues for example when the away team boards the rebel Magellan ship the audience is invited into that vessel drenched within darkness by way of a skewed camera frame that slowly rotates to a traditional shot as the team enters the vessel and what this does is it immediately proffers proffers the audience probably at a subconscious level that something is a myth yes these types of subtle visuals aren't designed to draw attention necessarily when you draw too much attention with your visuals the effect is lost whereas if you plan a strategic subtle motivation behind the camera what you get is that subconscious immersion yes this adds to the imminent reveal ultimately that the Magellans are not as they seem well automatically that it's funny that you brought that scene up because I fucking love that 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 camera shot, I was actually, I picked that out as the shot that I loved in this episode um, because of that, because it's such an easy element that a lot of filmmakers do not get. You don't have to just rely on your actors and your characters to tell your story. You can, do, you can give away story beats mm -hmm. using the camera. Mm -hmm. And that moment was one of my favorites because that was the most perfectly timed and perfectly executed way of getting our audience set not to trust the following characters, which right. was uh, Alora and the Magellans. The, the idea that something's amiss. That, that something something's is not, amiss. That something's not right. Automatically, we're, we're ready to say, okay, just visually, we're, we're saying stay on caution. Do not trust these people, even though, even though you, you start off by having Pike essentially, this is his love interest. So because it's Pike's love interest, then we're, then you as the audience were going, well, if Pike knows them and trusts them, then obviously we can trust them as the audience. But because of that one moment, it automatically told me, no, 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 no something's amiss. Something's going to happen at the end of this. That's going to flip the flip the script. Yeah. Yeah, it was good, man. I don't I don't think there's any cons to this episode. It's all pros. Now, I'm not saying that I'm giving this episode a 100 percent just because I'm very careful with those 100 percent. But but I will say, Dave. Hmm. So I'm going to give this episode a 98 percent on the RMD score. 
I, I feel like the episode would just was flawless in its design at all levels. And I, there really isn't much to complain about. And I, I do get a little depressed when I see that some of these Star Trek fans are still fucking bitching. And, and then you have Fox news putting out articles about the wokeness of Star Trek and they're breaking down. It's like they're reviewing it strictly under the guise or the lens of whether they would consider this woke or not. Like that's not how you should review things. Let's do a woke or not show a woke or not woke show where we're just going to nitpick every aspect that's progressive. Dude, that is so wrong on so many levels because guess what, Dave, because there is a trans individual or a black individual or a, a woman role that is dominant or has leadership qualities doesn't make a show woke. What it does is establish a reality that reflects our reality. Because guess what, David? In the world we live in, trans people exist. Gay people exist. Black people exist. And there's nothing anyone can do unless you're Hitler to ever get rid of those people. So for us not to have the inclusion of those types of individuals would feel so off, especially when it comes to this show. All right, Dave. So give me your RMD score so we can close out today's discussion. Actually, surprisingly, you gave it a 98. I gave it a 98. Okay. I was, I was worried about giving it a hundred as well, because to me, I looked back at this episode, I said, there's nothing wrong with it. And that's why I had to turn off my Twitter feed because everyone's saying that it was a bad episode. I'm like going, I, I don't understand that. I don't understand that, David. The writing was fine, people. That line of thinking goes against everything I know when it comes to film and writing. I'm like, what, what are you guys watching? I don't, I don't understand this. You're, you're not watching the show for its story. You're looking at it superficially and saying, and focusing on a person's haircut. Why you're free. So you're not paying attention to nurse chapel, but you're not paying attention to Pike. You're not paying attention to Spock or Una. You're and on top of that, Mike, they're focusing on a character's haircut that she didn't play a lot, a heavy role in, in the episode. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. All right. So we can go on and on, but that's what Patreon is for. So if, Listeners out there want to get more Star Trek from the holodeck discussions, head over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Rainman Digital and pledge $5 or more a month. And you'll gain access to all of our additional podcast episodes, as well as all of our behind the scenes discussions as well. Our pre-shows patreon.com slash Rainman Digital. Thank you, David. Thank you. Live long and prosper. I couldn't help but notice your pain. My pain. It runs deep. Share it with me. End simulation.